Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. That reading can be found in the Pew Bible on page 807. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Those old habits die hard, don't they? (laughs) Well, let me open up for us in a word of prayer before we go to God's word. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that God was with us in the person of your Son. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you. Give us grace to see the light more clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Recently, a group from the church traveled to Israel. Indeed, one of the most memorable experiences while we were there was King Hezekiah's tunnel a tunnel that he built during the Assyrian siege to protect Jerusalem's water source. Now, in 2013, I went to Jerusalem. Sue and I went there with part of our family, and we went through this mile-long tunnel then. But in 2013, the tunnel was lit. Now, recently, due to various modifications, there were no lights in the tunnel. Uh, Now, Dr. Hannah told me before we went on this little excursion, that he wanted me to lead it. I'm a little claustrophobic, so that got me stirred up a little bit, because now we've got total darkness. It was pitch black in front of me, even though I had my little flashlight, it was still pitch black in front of me, and my flashlight kept going out. So I faced occasional flashes of near total darkness. And I have to tell you, I didn't like it. I was crouched down in this dark, mile-long cave with water up to my calves, and I was eager to get out of the darkness and into the light. I think in general, none of us really love darkness, do we? I mean, from young toddlers to old men, the middle of the night can be very unsettling. And not without scriptural warrant, for darkness symbolizes evil. It symbolizes trouble, God's judgment, 
alienation, isolation. You remember the ninth plague in Egypt where you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face? Or how about our Savior on the cross? Total darkness from midday to to 3 p.m., which signified God's awful judgment on our sin through our Savior. With one notable exception, which I'll speak to later in the sermon, light is always desirable. And in every scenario, light is the answer. For light represents life, our salvation from the darkness of sin and death. And this God promised long ago. Light for those who sit in darkness. Now this morning we want to examine that light, its promise, and its fulfillment in the one who called himself the light of the world. And we want to answer this question. What does it look like to come out of the darkness? And additionally, what does it look like to walk as children of light? That is, how do we navigate all of life by faith, even in our soul's darkest hour? Our tack today will be to look at scriptural contexts of darkness to see how God always responded with the promise of light. Let's start at the very beginning. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, the very first book in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, and let me read verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Well, there we have it. Earth was formless and void. It's a picture of disorder. It's a picture of darkness. It's a picture of chaos. And that darkness hovers over the face of the deep. And the remedy? Well, it's in verse 3. Let's continue. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. What was the first creative act in the Bible? It was light. Not everybody's happy about that light. I think I scared her with my loud voice. Darkness hovered over the earth, implying a need, and if you will, a promise of light. And God said, let there be light. And voila, there was light. God spoke, there was light. He created light out of darkness by his word. And the New Testament, as you probably know, identifies that word as Jesus Christ. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke... John. And let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Notice the similarity with Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
Something John called the Word was in the beginning with God, and in fact, John says, was God. And that Word was the one through whom all things, not just the light, were made. Verse 3. Now this one through whom all things were made, this divine agent of creation, John says in verse 4, is life. That is, his very essence is life. And this life, which gave life to the formless void earth, this life gives light to every man by overcoming the spiritual darkness. Now, the reader of John's gospel would have no doubt that this word, which is life and light, the light of men, is Jesus Christ. But John leaves us no doubt as to his identity. Look down with me, same chapter, John 1. Look down with me to verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and this Word proclaimed this in John 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. This promise of light, if you will, was introduced in Genesis chapter 1, but more clearly articulated in Genesis chapter 3. So let's turn there. Go back again to the book of Genesis, only this time chapter 3. Now we're talking about its spiritual meaning more clearly. Genesis chapter 3, and I'll pick it up in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat, Of it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. I believe this is the darkest portion of all of Scripture, indeed of all human history. Eve is deceived. Adam rebels. 
And mankind is condemned to death for God's warning from chapter 2. As Adam acted as our, as our representative, as our proxy for the entire human race. But even before sin's full penalty is articulated, and we'll see that later in chapter 3, God graciously articulates the promise of light. Pick it up with me in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent as an animal, as an animal, is typologically condemned to perpetual contempt in verse 14. That's what's going on. He's condemned to perpetual contempt. But his eternal demise as the embodiment of Satan is predicted there in verse 15. Did you note the details of that demise? Number one, God will create enmity between Satan and the woman and between their respective offspring. And two, the woman's offspring will bruise or crush the devil's head, and the devil will bruise or crush the offspring of the woman's heel. Of the woman's heel. But what does that all mean? What is actually being promised in verse 15? Well, let's turn again to John's gospel. John chapter 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And let's pick it up in verse 27. This is Jesus right before his death. The week before his death. He says, now is my soul troubled. Verse 27. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Well, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Here the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 is explained. Satan's head bruised equals Satan receiving a mortal wound, thus being stripped of his ability to deceive the nations from coming to Christ through the gospel. Now, other portions of Scripture speak of Satan being bound, or here in John 12, being cast out of his realm. And Christ's heel being bruised, it is a reference to his death on the cross, a non-mortal wound as evidenced by his resurrection three days later. Now, from John 1, we saw that darkness cannot overcome the light. Rather, the prince of darkness will be overcome by the promised light of the world. And that promise is embellished through the Old Testament and perhaps nowhere more than by the prophet Isaiah. 
Now, we're going to get into some deep weeds here, just trying to understand some context, so stick with me. But let's turn to Isaiah chapter 7. If you don't know where that is, there's a page number in the outline, or you can just open up to the middle of your Bible, and up will pop Isaiah. And let's go to chapter 1. Let me pick it up in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. And when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from, among, from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. I'm sure you're saying, well, isn't this supposed to be a Christmas service? What are we doing reading that? Well, hang with me. So Ahaz, his unbelief, I'm sorry, the promise of light here in this chapter is against the backdrop of great spiritual darkness. And what is that darkness? It's the darkness of impending judgment upon Judah, which is the southern kingdom. Remember under Solomon, Israel was divided, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was made up of ten of the tribes. The southern kingdom was made up of two of the tribes, which ultimately were absorbed in one tribe and was responded to, uh, uh, delegated as Judah. And why this impending judgment? It's because of distrust. In this case, the distrust of King Ahaz, king of Judah. Now, don't confuse him with Ahab. This is Ahaz. Ahab was the king of Israel, that nasty king of Israel, with his lovely wife Jezebel. Remember those two? What a, what a couple that was. Um, don't, it's a whole different scenario. This is King Ahaz of the house of David. He's the king of Judah. And so Ahaz is struggling with distrust, with a lack of faith. Now let me explain. You have to understand the context of this scenario. Syria, or Aram, as some of your translations have it, was in alliance with Israel, the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes. And they had attacked and laid siege to Jerusalem. And Ahaz wants to and will eventually solicit evil Assyria's help. Now that is described in 2 Kings 16. I won't read it. But eventually he'll go to Assyria 
for help against this coalition of Syria or Aram with the northern kingdom. Now, by the way, you should note that it was Ahaz's pact with the Assyrian king that ultimately resulted in the destruction and exile of the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C. Now, in our text, the the pact has not yet been made, at least verses 1 to 9. God, through the prophet Isaiah, is appealing to King Ahaz to trust the Lord and not turn to Assyria for help, even though Jerusalem is besieged by this Syrian-Israel coalition. In fact, God's appeal is clear at the end of verse 9. Did you catch that? He says to King Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You see, he's beckoning Ahaz to hang in there, trust the Lord to deliver him. But as we'll see, Ahaz's response is a response of unbelief. He does turn to Israel, and so God, after one last stab, offers a sign of hope, ultimately a promise of light and of temporary judgment. Let's pick it up in verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refute the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now we don't have time to unpack all of that, and these are some difficult verses to interpret. But let me just give you the high points. Ahaz's unbelief is seen in verse 12. That is, his refusal to ask for a sign, even quoting Deuteronomy in a very pious kind of way about not tempting the Lord as God, it's really an unwillingness to trust God instead of the Assyrians in the face of the coalition's besiegement of Jerusalem. He's refusing. He's refusing God's help. And in response to that unbelief, verses 13 and following, God pronounces a sign against the house of David. That is against the southern kingdom ruled by King Ahaz, which is ultimately a positive sign. Well, what is the sign? The sign is that a virgin shall be with child and shall be called Emmanuel, verse 14. And then we have those tricky verses, verses 15, 16, and 17. And the question is, how do you reconcile a sign to Ahaz which won't materialize for another 700 plus years? Well, no easy answer exists. And there's at least two different theories on that, and I'm going to add my own theory, so here's a third. But let me suggest that Isaiah 7 parallels Daniel 2. He said, oh no, I knew he was going to go back to Daniel. 
that Isaiah 7 parallels Daniel 2, 45 and 46, where there the foreign kings who ruled over Judah from Babylon, which conquered Assyria very shortly after Assyria would conquer uh, most of Israel, that ruled over Judah from Babylon all the way to Rome, so Babylon, Medo-Persians, Greece, Rome, those foreign kings are referenced in one compact phrase in Daniel chapter 2, in reference to Christ's return. It says, in the days of those kings, Messiah will come. You see, this whole period is viewed as one simple exit on the road of redemption. And once we get to that exit, those kings, which I'm suggesting expands from Assyria all the way to Rome, in the days of those kings, Messiah will come. A virgin shall be with child, and you shall name his name Emmanuel. I think that's what he's saying here in Isaiah chapter 7. But regardless, Isaiah is not done embellishing this wonderful promise of a virgin coming with child. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. You'll say, well, I like that chapter better. It's more familiar and it's more straightforward. Pick it up in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the formal time, former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them was light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Though the house of David would be under the foreign rule of hostile kings for over six centuries until the kingdom of God would be inaugurated, nevertheless the promise of its coming king is still sure. Emmanuel will be a light to the Gentiles and the child will be a king who rules over the kingdom of perfect justice forever and ever. Handel's got it right. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Hallelujah. And all this will be accomplished through the divine child born of a virgin, as the New Testament clearly certifies. Go back to our scripture reading, Matthew chapter 1. While you're turning to that, there is a mild controversy that has raged among biblical scholars because the word translated virgin 
the Hebrew word translated virgin, in Isaiah 7, could be translated maiden. That's right. But when we get to the Greek that's in the New Testament, the word that's used in Matthew 1, as we'll see, can only be translated virgin. And so the New Testament is interpreting the Old Testament. By the way, that's an important principle. The New Testament, not biblical linguists, interprets the Old Testament. And here we have a definitive translation of an interpretation of that passage in Isaiah chapter 7. So let's pick it up in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as, she considered, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He will save the nation, his people, from their sins. And his name shall be called Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Yes, God with us, which is exactly what was needed to happen in order for us to be saved from our sins. We needed God himself to become fully like us so that he could bear our sins as our perfect substitute as the perfect sacrifice without spot or wrinkle which alone which alone would satisfy God's justice against our awful hell-deserving sin and this God-man was Jesus Christ God with us The babe in a manger, the word made flesh, the king of kings, the light of the world. He has come, and his rule has begun. A day is coming when he shall return for his people, and when all of his enemies will be a footstool for his feet, and the darkness of sin and death will be vanquished Forever. Hallelujah. So what does that all mean for us in our everyday lives? What does it look like? What does it look like to come out of darkness and to walk as children of light? Well, first, as I mentioned in my my introduction, there is actually one darkness that all of us 
in Adam, love. We all love the darkness of privacy. Because our deeds are evil and we don't want to come to the light to expose us for who we really are. Sinful, evil people who deserve God's eternal wrath. Remember what Jesus said? The light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. They don't want to be exposed. First thing Adam did was cover himself. But there's good news. Dear unbeliever, there's good news. For Jesus Christ, the light of the world, has come. Not to condemn, he said in John 3, but to save, to rescue, to redeem all who used to love the darkness of their sin. The only requirement is a willingness to come to the light. Exposing and confessing your sin and asking Emmanuel to save you from the darkness of that sin and from the darkness of that death. And he will do it. He will save you from sin and death. And not only that, he will also guide you in the paths of righteousness as a children, as children of light. And so I say to you this morning, if you're here and you don't know Christ... If you're here and you're not sure you know Christ, come to the light. Let the Lord Jesus Christ expel the darkness in your heart and give you a new heart. One that is overflowing with light. One that will enable you to walk in newness of life. One that will assure you that death no longer has a grip on you. Come to Christ. Don't leave this service. Don't leave this Christmas season outside of Christ. Well, so what does that look like? What does it look like to walk as a children, as children of light? Let me close with three things. To start with, no matter the darkness, no matter the difficulty, believers can still have and walk by faith. A joyful faith that God is in the difficulty. God is ordaining the difficulty for their greatest good. Most of you know Romans chapter 8, 28 to 30. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew. These he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. You see, no matter the circumstance, no matter the darkness, no matter the difficulty, our heavenly Father's hand is in it for our good. He loves us. And he disciplines us, which thereby validates that we're legitimate, true sons and daughters. I mean, remember, he ordained Christ's suffering, did he not? He ordained Christ's suffering that he might learn obedience, that he might learn trust. So whatever your life circumstances, our Heavenly Father is right in the middle of it, doing the very same thing, teaching you obedience, teaching you trust. It's not an accident. It's not a raw deal. It's a trial from the hand of God. 
We might call it a severe mercy. It's a severe mercy. But it's necessary to make us like his son. To conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. But it's always, always from his loving hand. Always. You know, as I've, as I've processed some of my relational hurts over the last several years, the fact that I have a Heavenly Father who loves me and has purposed even the most painful situations in my life, that reality brings me great comfort. And as I gaze on my Savior who knew this truth far better than I, it strengthens me to continue to run the race with endurance. Beloved, listen to me. He loves us too much. He loves us far too much to leave you or to leave me the way that we currently are. He will, whatever it takes, finally make us like his son. Hallelujah. Hallelujah for such love. Second, no matter the difficulty, believers can still hope in God because God fulfilled his promise at the cross. Now, we won't take time to read Romans 8, 31 through 39. Most of you know it. And it poses four questions of assurance which are really four assurances designed to buttress our hope, even when our lives are turned upside down. What are those four assurances in Romans 8, 31 to 39? Well, first, that no one can harm us. That is, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. No one can harm us. For if he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not... Also do everything needed to bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. And second, no one can accuse us. That is, no one can bring a charge against God's elect, including Satan, who is designated the accuser of the brethren, because God has justified us. He's declared us righteous. He's declared us forgiven. And he said, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. He remembers our sins against us no more in the new covenant. And third, no one can condemn us. That's because Christ died for us. And more than that, Romans 8 teaches, Christ was raised from the dead. And why is that important? Because that enables him to ever live to intercede for our sins. Are you aware that Jesus is working 24-7 interceding for you when you sin? Interceding for your sanctification? That's what he lives to do. We're his precious bride. And he's ever living to do that. And no one can condemn us because we're always forgiven. We're in a state of perpetual grace because the son right now is seated at God's right hand, interceding for us as our great high priest. And finally, no one can separate us from Christ's love. Not distress, persecution, famine, sword, 
Paul concludes that glorious chapter with this quote, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you catch that? Not even death, not even death can separate us from God's all-conquering love. Later today, we will remember Paulette, our sister Paulette has died. She's dead. But she's not been separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, even in her disembodied state. And someday, someday, Paulette, along with all of us who truly believe, will experience death being swallowed up in victory at the resurrection of our bodies. Hallelujah. Can we say amen? Amen. And finally, thirdly, no matter the darkness or hardship, believers are still the only light of the world. It's quite an honor. And it's quite a responsibility. Remember, Jesus told us in Matthew 5 that we were the light of the world and that we must not be shy about showing off that light by walking as children of light. So despite the pushback, beloved, our captain's word to us, and Jesus is the captain of our faith, his word to us is advance. Advance. Continue to make Christ known personally. By the way, you know that the light shines brightest when the backdrop is darkest. We've got a pretty dark backdrop going on right now, don't we? What an opportunity for the light to shine brilliantly. So advance in learning how to share your faith how to give your testimony, how to engage others with the blessed gospel of God. I think we're going to have some opportunities for that next semester. Take advantage of all the outreach events here at CMC. Invite folk to the men's events, to the women's events, to our services. Invite them to the Christmas Eve service. It's a no-brainer, especially this year, because a lot of people won't be going anywhere on Christmas Day. But Christmas Eve looms as a legitimate alternative for them. It's a no-brainer. Invite them to that Christmas Eve service. Let's shine in a world that is shrouded with darkness. And by the way, let us continue to support those works that make Christ known regionally and globally. Now, this past Monday, my heart was deeply moved. I was moved to tears. I couldn't speak. Because 13 churches in the NETS network which is our church planning and revitalization ministry, banded together. And at our bi-monthly NETS Network meeting, we presented a check for $40,000 in support of one of the most mission-minded churches in the network. It's a church which has planted a daughter church at a great sacrifice to itself. By the way, children are expensive, aren't they? 
and it has contributed people and time and money to at least two other church revitalizations in the area. What about the Nets Africa work, which we've already had the chance to support? You know that the name of that building, I told Shadrach not to do it, but the name of that building that you saw on the slide earlier in the service, he's named the building the Nets Africa Center for Church Planning and Revitalization. What a work to support with all those church plants and revitalizations going on in Cameroon. These are the kind of works we want to get serious about and continue to support as a church. Beloved, Emmanuel was promised, and Emmanuel has come. God said, let there be light, and the light of the world was born in a manger. He was born in a humble cave 2,000 years ago. Let us savor that reality. Let us bask in the light of his death, burial, and resurrection for our deliverance. Let us walk by faith, as the Getty hymn says, until the race is finished and the work is done, and we finally see him face to face at the resurrection of the dead. Ah, yes. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful that Emmanuel has come and that he has died for our sins and that he rose again on the third day for our justification and that right now he is seated at your right hand. He is seated on the throne of David and he upholds all things right now by the word of his power. And he has called us and sent us to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, to make disciples of all the nations. I pray that we would do that with joy, that we would weather the difficulties that come along with doing that, with confidence that Emmanuel has come and that he will be with us to the end of the age. We thank you for these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.